Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to the Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy Wednesday to you. Uh, for those who are keeping notes, there was not a show yesterday. I just ran a best of on the America One Radio app at AmericaOneRadio.com. Today, I awake uh, having given myself a, a good, uh, I guess, day off recharge, an opportunity to just kind of catch my breath a little bit. Been really busy work-wise the last few weeks, and so I just kind of needed to give myself a little day off, and I thought yesterday was an actually good day to do that. And it was. It turned out to be. Uh, here's where we're going to start today, though, where the sausage is made. Nobody likes to see the way the sausage is made, but sometimes it's important to pay attention to what's happening inside your state general assembly, your county board of education, your county school board, to, to see what's coming out of these meetings that you may or may not be paying attention to. Uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, Marissa Pyle was uh, tweeting from the Senate, the Georgia Senate subcommittee, and a few bills were coming through. One that really caught my eye and something that I can talk on at great length anytime uh, you'd like <laughs> or anytime I'd like uh, on this show or otherwise when it comes to channeling patriotism through our education. And I don't mean to make it sound like I'm against us teaching our kids the many and varied great things about this country and its nation's history. I get concerned when we try to eliminate the parts of our history that are valuable lessons for us to learn going forward. I'm going to let Senator Clinton Dixon read this bill to you so you can understand the flowery language and what's hiding beneath it. SB 459, uh, Civics Education, and I am presenting that bill. Uh, this is uh, the Quality Based Education Act. has to do with uh, teaching students uh, civics and K through 12. The State Board of Education uh, uh, shall start uh, in the school year of 2025 and 2026 to develop a comprehensive uh, civics education for students uh, from kindergarten through 12th grade. Uh, to prepare students to be civically knowledgeable and responsible adults to understand the importance of civic involvement in a constitutional republic. Uh, such programs shall aid students um, in developing an understanding of shared rights, responsibilities of residents of the state and of the founding principles of the United States. Be happy to take any questions. I, for one, am curious why we are passing bills that the Heritage Foundation nearly wrote verbatim, but but I'm not there to ask that question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Here what well. is meant by um, civic-minded expectations of an upright and desirable citizenry that recognizes and accepts responsibility for preserving and defending the blessings of liberty? What does all that mean? <laughs> he didn't write it. <laughs> Essentially, what what it reads, uh, it's you know, <laughs> to give students uh, understanding of civics here in the United States. Oh, I'm all for that. I just don't understand what this lines 32 through 35 mean. <laughs> he didn't write it. I don't know what an upright and desirable citizenry means to. I mean, I feel like that's the subjective. blessings of liberty from our forefathers, and that we live in the greatest country in the world. Mm. Upright and desirable citizenry. 
uh, to me that's subjective so I just don't know what that what you mean by that that's that's my he question didn't write it that's, that's the problem <laughs> Senator Setzler. Here we go. Mr. Chairman, I, I, if I could uh, indulge the chair, I might make a stab at my thoughts to the lady's question, if that's if, if I could. Yeah, please go ahead. Yes. I mean, I, I, th I think we're I think we're affirming that a free society has to have people that are largely, to the extent possible, self-governing where we can. You know, if we're if we're a, a citizenry that's not living upright and desirable lives that are noble and true and good, then we have to have police presence everywhere. There has to be a surveillance state. You have to have cameras on people. Um, and that the idea of having um, a citizenry that not only is upright and largely self-governed, but accepts a responsibility that every citizen has. It's not just the government. It's not just the police powers that preserve order, but that every person accepts responsibility that, that no matter where you come from, no matter what your ethnic background is, no matter what zip code you live in, no matter what your adjustable gross, adjusted gross income is, that everybody has a common understanding and responsibility to preserve the blessings we have. Um, and Mr. Chairman, I was at a we had a thing in my one of my high schools. It was it's a special needs dance that we bring special needs kids in with buses, and we do it. We do a problem for them, um, and you got bus after bus after bus coming in, and you got the varsity volleyball team and the football team all sort of doing a, a, a prom thing during work hours with kids, mm -hmm. and the resources it takes to put that on are tremendous. I mean, it is a free society, a free enterprise system that cares about people and that cares about the dignity of every individual that has the prosperity, the blessings of our system allow us to honor these special needs kids. You can't have that in a society that you enforce compliance by the police powers only. You have to have a self-governed, good culture. And I think that's something that this is trying to, that's what 32 through 35 means. What? In my opinion. Uh-oh. I, I, I think you made my point, Senator Setzler. What if, what if I rattled off like 15 other things in addition to what you said? You're talking about your opinion. I yeah. want to know, what does this mean? Well, I mean, to, to, Mr. Chairman, could I answer that? Sure. I mean, I think, I think the people in this panel, um, even though there may be some gradations of what's the best of the best of the best and what may be second best. There, there may be some variability there, but I think well, the, this panel and the people in this room can have consensus about a, what a worthy, noble life is. And if we saw it, we'd recognize it. Um, and that doesn't mean compliance. But I do think there's a sense in which people who are living an upright, desirable life of self-government and self-personal responsibility, I think, I think everyone in this room could recognize that even though this room is very diverse. And so I do think there are certain standards of excellence and truth that we want to uphold mm. that, is, that is essential to have a free society. And I'd, I'd like to also add, uh, just going back to line 19, that this is going to be set up by the State Board of Education, not one of mm -hmm. us on this uh, committee. Well, that was actually going to be my follow-up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, because since we're instructing other people to do it, and these are vague and subjective terms 
I just personally think that the bill is much clearer without 32 through 35. Um, and with that in there, I feel like there's all kinds of questions that we're foisting on them and there's no uniform understanding of what on earth that means. Mm. So I, I view that as problematic. Thank you, Senator. That is friend of the show, past show guest, Senator Elena Parent asking some legitimate questions like what's up with this flowery language, this vague rhetoric, this gray language that can be interpreted by anybody at any level from the State Board of Education down to a County Board of Education into a classroom and wind up getting a teacher in trouble for teaching something that runs afoul of some Bubba's opinion on a school board, either at the county or the state level. And so I started this segment talking about how the sausage is made and how nobody likes to see how the sausage is made. This committee meeting was more than an hour long and kind of boring, and they went back and forth for several minutes trying to define what an upright and desirable citizen is. Again, this comes from the Heritage Foundation's Project 2025 playbook and the Georgia State Senate here on the right. They got caught trying to insert some language that they didn't write. They don't really know the meaning of. They can't. It's like trying to ask someone on the right, well, what do you think woke is? Crickets. So this conversation ensues as to defining what that term means. And you have folks from divergent backgrounds who are arguing about its intent and its media. I'm telling you, this is not the sort of stuff that's exciting, but it's it's interesting to watch how our education on civics gets crafted in this draped-in-the-flag faux patriotism. I think, Mr. Chairman, if I may, I think what you're trying to ensure with this particular code, this particular part of the legislation is that perhaps this is driven by concerns that the future generations of America may not, that um, they may need some help in understanding, as you say here, the blessings of liberty inherited from prior generations and secured by the United States Constitution, which I would say we probably all would agree was is the greatest self-governance document ever written in the history of humankind. I would hope so. So what I'm trying to um, get on the record here is whether the reason for striking that is because we're trying to strike the desire for people to preserve and defend the blessings of liberty, or if we're trying to strike... clarify the whole statement. Yeah. Okay. And that's so, Senator Dolezal, by the way, speaking now. Mr. Chairman, I would defer to you on this. I'd be happy to um, make a stab at some clarification that captures the uh, what I think your intent is, which would be by removing the upright and desirable citizenry, or I'd be happy to stand with you and vote this amendment down. I would defer to you on that. He didn't write it. That's the I point. Mean, I think uh, I think it's pretty clear, uh, you know, as far as upright and desirable citizenry. Uh, you know, we may have had some opinions going back and forth between two members, but I don't see where anything's. Um, you know, murky or unclear with with the statement, and like I said, it's not one of us on this uh, committee that's going to be setting this up as the state board of education. So just handing them I'm something. This question, something that you didn't I'm write in the first place, and that's the problem. <laughs> this is so, so awkward. Thank Good. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's Fourteen. I think that I think everybody in this room or certainly sitting up here agrees that civics education is really important for our young people mm -hmm. and that without it we just don't understand how to participate in what is a participatory democracy. I think the lines 32 through 35 though um, do bring up certain other kinds of thoughts 
even if it's not meant to, because I think I do understand what it is you're trying to say here. But when we say things like upright and desirable citizenry, that's a hard thing, I think, for those of us like me who, for the longest time, weren't part of that citizenry or considered upright or desirable. And so even though that's not the intention here, I grant you it's not, there are words in here that for those of us who think about the history of the country, we were challenged with like <coughs> embracing this particular language. Mm -hmm. Even if we agree with what mm -hmm. it is from an intention standpoint, you're trying to say here. So I think I like the idea of amending it because principally there's nothing else here that's, that's creating any kind of problems or any kind of emotional response or anything like that. I mean, I think we all are in agreement that this is something that should pass and we're ending up spending a lot of time talking about it only because of like this sentence. That is uh, Senior and so Sonia Halpern, I believe. I would, I would offer, I mean, so I support striking it altogether. If you don't feel like it ultimately changes really what you're trying to accomplish. And I don't know that it does change what you're trying to do here if we don't say that. Or, on the other hand, if it's important to say an understanding of the civic-minded expectations, the other sentence here, the other piece of the phrase that kind of does even for me bring up some reservations is the part about the the blessings of liberty inherited from prior generations it just is bringing up something for me and i can't quite explain it but I, but I, but i but i agree about you know secured by the united states constitution like none of the there are only a few words in this sentence that kind of feel like funny so i i share that with the committee to just so everybody here maybe understands that it's not in principle that we have a that I have a problem with the bill at all or what we're trying to achieve here because I'm in agreement with that. But some of the word choices are the things that give me agita. Agita. Thank you. Dang. SAT word, y'all. That is Senator Sonia Halperin who is. Uh, joining with Donzella James there on the education subcommittee with some concerns about some of the ickiness of the tone of, again, something that was almost lifted entirely from the Heritage Foundation's 2025 plan. And you've got Georgia Republicans who can't explain what they didn't write in the first place. And by the way, that happens all the time at the state and the federal level. Uh, I'll discuss this a little bit more when we return. Quick break when the Ron Show comes back on the American One Radio app, AmericanRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show. Thanks for listening. So I'm letting you behind the curtain a little bit, the uh, Georgia State Senate Subcommittee on Education and Youth, because I, I think it's important sometimes, despite the fact that not a lot of us want to know how the sausage is made or we find it boring, that there are these conversations that take place uh, where legislators kind of get caught throwing something onto the grill that they didn't write, that they didn't produce, and they have to explain the language of it. And we're seeing a little bit of that with some flowery rhetoric coming, uh, rhetoric coming from a Heritage Foundation piece on uh, upright citizenry, and you have senators on this committee who got caught flat-footed a little bit, unable to explain exactly what these terms mean, and they're getting called to the carpet by Democrats on this same subcommittee. 
we as a society have been fighting for a little while now. What is woke? What 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 is learning from uh, our, our history? Uh, what can be taught to our kids? What can't be critical race theory? What can't be taught? What uh, the, the ugliness that we're not supposed to know about or supposed to be teaching our kids about that they should be or should not be learning from? And it's these vague words and flowery rhetoric coming from the Heritage Foundation Project 2025 that has that subcommittee yesterday ground to a halt for nearly 15 minutes defining three lines. I just wanted to add, Mr. Chairman, you know, I really like the language on lines, um, you know, 21 through 24 about prepare students to be civically knowledgeable and responsible adults and to understand the importance of civic involvement in a constitutional republic. I think all of us could get behind that. Um, and just wanted to mention that, that I think that's pretty clear and gets to the intent of the bill. And this other language is, seems to be extraneous and vague. Mm-hmm. On purpose. And is causing discomfort. So just really wanted to echo my colleague on, um, on that, Senator uh, Halpern. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Fast forward a few minutes later, and this difference in interpretation and perspective comes into focus. Senator Sessler. Get this. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I, I do think there's a difference. I think there's a, it's, there's a, there's a fair policy question here. Um, I think it's, uh, I, would, uh, I would defer to the, to the chair's language because I do think it's an important component of this to talk about an upright citizenry um, that both recognizes and accepts the responsibility for a defending the blessings of liberty. It is not a governmental function. It's not just the power of the police state. Mm-hmm. It is both, we have to understand it and accept it in a free society. I think, I think 32 and 33 are very important. Um, I, I don't know why we would change it. Um, are there certain words in here that I think are more important than others? I think, we, I think if the four, if the nine people on this panel were all voting, we would probably all write this a little bit differently anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm prepared to support the chair's motion. I think it's solid language that doesn't create any un, undesired, unintended consequence. I would also say to, to, to the lady, to, to the um, to the lady's question, um, I don't think it, this invokes. I don't read this to invoke anything pernicious. Um, you think about the people that were our, our prior, I think it's very important to understand as, as we interpret the history of our nation, the things that were ugly about our past, we have wholly rejected. Uh-huh. And I think we, the, the idea that things existed in our past is not to say that the good traditions we carry forward um, aren't worthy. I think the things we see in our past that were, were wrong-minded, base, ugly, and to be rejected, I think I and this panel wholly rejects. And I don't think the fact that bad things happened in our past suggests that carrying forward our good traditions as a nation can't be separated from bad things that have happened that we have decidedly overcome both in law and constitution and, and practice. I mean, our, we, we have an ugly past. There, there are many ugly things in our past in our nation, but I don't think that um, I don't think this somehow gins that up and tries to justify. That's that's our relationship. But that's just it. We have spent so much time the last few years trying to unwoke 
curriculum in this country to prevent us from even knowing the ugly parts of our past, to know what we've rejected or what we've allowed to fester. And terms like upright citizen make me think, well, uh, when we were British colonies, our forefathers, not all of them were upright citizens in the eye of King George, right? That those who marched for civil rights in the middle of the 20th century, those were not deemed to be, in the eyes of the law and law enforcement, upright citizens, right? That those that stood up to law enforcement in New York in the 1970s at the Stonewall Riots, those were not upright citizens. Also, I might add, can we all come to an agreement that the J6 rioters weren't upright citizens? Uh, you know, it might be a little too easy, a little red meat for my side here. Anyway, a lot of time on what is essentially, I think, useless legislation. It passed in the subcommittee uh, by a 5-4 vote. It'll see the light of day in the uh, House as well. And obviously, the State Board of Education will have to figure out how to deal with this fluff. Speaking of fluff, Kelly Loeffler, former senator, has weighed in on Fonnie Willis. We'll dive into that when The Ron Show returns. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. So we spent a lot of time last week, obviously, as the world did, at least in the United States media, political media circles, focusing on the testimony of Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who reminded us that she's not on trial here, that there are co-defendants and Donald Trump himself who are on trial for allegedly, she didn't use the word allegedly, I will, uh, for allegedly trying to steal the 2020 election, at least in the state of Georgia, where there was a phone call we've heard between the former president and the secretary of state where votes needed to be found. Interestingly enough, we've gotten two opinion pieces in the last few days from different perspectives. And I would offer that uh, while one actually directly targets Fonnie Willis for removal from this case, the other doesn't necessarily defend Fonnie Willis. But I, in fact, I've reached out to the author of this other opinion piece, and I want to have her on the show here uh, soon to discuss uh, her, her views on this and extrapolate a little bit more. But she goes to point out that the rules are different for ambitious and powerful women. One such ambitious and was once powerful woman is the former senator of the state of Georgia, Kelly Leffer, who also used to be the owner of the WNBA's uh, Atlanta Dream franchise here in Atlanta, who inevitably had to sell the franchise because most, if not all, of the players on the team <laughs> And a lot of the organization beneath her stood in stark contrast to her stance on uh, the civil rights movement of the 2020s and Black Lives Matter. It was awkward. We remember this, right? Anyway, Kelly Leffer decided to weigh in on Fonnie Willis with an opinion piece in the AJC that I'm going to read for you now. The profitable affair between Fulton County District Attorney. Profitable affair between Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade was well underway when I was called to testify as a witness to the Fulton Grand Jury in 2022. Profitable affair. How prop? I mean, we're talking about trips to Napa. And by the way, there was like a wine steward who weighed in and said, yeah, I remember her. She paid cash. It was interesting. We don't have that happen very often. That has since come forth uh, since Fonnie testified. Royal Caribbean cruise and flights, profitable? Oh, boy. Kelly Leffler continues, but that isn't the real problem with her case against former President Donald Trump. Last week, Willis defended herself against the allegation that she profited off her indictment of Trump by appointing her underqualified and overpaid lover to lead the prosecution. 
The details of Wade's $650,000 taxpayer payouts and their lavish vacations are well documented. I might also point out that it's also documented in testimony last week, uh, former Senator Loeffler, that Nathan Wade wasn't even the first person offered the job, that a former governor of the state was, and he turned it down. And that the rate he was paid, his law firm was paid, was actually less than Fani's predecessor paid other attorneys to be special prosecutors. But I digress. She continues, Willis' conflict of interest shatters any notion that the case against Trump has been prosecuted fairly. This goes back to the conflict of interest issue that they've tried to raise that makes absolutely no sense because they're on the same side. Leffler continues, her scheme is disqualifying. And Fulton Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee has already signaled a willingness to remove her from the case if the evidence bears out. She's opining there. There's, it's, it's impossible to read Scott McAfee, I believe. This would be a step in the right direction, she writes, but anything less than a complete dismissal of the case <laughs> is a bandage on the open wound of a justice system that is hemorrhaging its core principle of due process. Leffler has no idea what she's talking about here. This has absolutely nothing to do. In fact, there are already, what, four co-defendants who have pled guilty who are cooperating with the district attorney's office. Obviously, they understood the due process and understood that they were screwed. She continues, too many prosecutors today are like Willis and Manhattan district attorney Alvin Bragg. Hmm. Avid partisans trading impartial justice for political calculation. Or maybe, former Senator Leffler and Trump acolyte, maybe Donald Trump is just a really bad guy who tried to do a lot of really bad shit over the course of his life, his adult life, and he's finally getting called to the carpet on it. I mean, if we want to talk about the open wound of our justice system, it's letting people get off when it's so obvious they got caught. She continues, the incentives are clear, sideline and slander President Joe Biden's political opponent, deliver him the 2024 election, and jump to the front of the party's line for higher office. Oh, that's rich. Coming from Kelly Loeffler. It's no coincidence that Willis launched her re-election campaign a mere five days before she brought her formal grand jury indictment against Trump last year, or that she initially requested his trial begin exactly one week before Georgia's 2024 presidential primary. Although I didn't know it when I testified as a witness, I was also a target in the Fulton County grand jury investigation. I was under scrutiny for asking questions, as a U.S. senator, about unilateral election law changes and inconsistencies in the 2020 election. I refuse to apologize. They do refuse to apologize. But to a partisan prosecutor, free speech that challenges the democratic narrative is reasonable grounds to consider bringing charges. This is an editor's note, by the way. The special grand jury in the Trump case recommended 39 people be indicted on criminal charges in relation to the national effort to overturn the 2020 election, including former Republican senators Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. Fonnie Willis did not charge them. Okay, back to Leffler. This is the issue. Sidelining one district attorney from one case won't fix a justice system increasingly plagued by partisans motivated to target political opponents. She writes, 
in all seriousness, after allowing the former president to seat people on the Supreme Court who essentially lied under oath about their take on established law, you know, abortion. She writes, by the time their cases reach a judge, the damage to public opinion and to their intended target has already been done. With, <laughs> here we go, with George Soros and other Democrat mega donors getting more involved in the courts, how can we have confidence they won't rule with the same political agenda? She writes in all seriousness, while her party wants to do absolutely nothing to Clarence Thomas, who has benefited for decades from mega donors like Harlan Crow. Back to Leffler. Relying on judges or post hoc investigations simply cannot be the way forward for the conservative movement or our communities. In the final analysis, taxpayers and families are the real victims of activist DAs who no longer see their role as bringing real criminals to justice and whose dereliction of duty is responsible for the rise in lawlessness across America's cities. Crime in Atlanta and in Fulton County, by the way, way down. Fonnie Willis, before Trump and the co-defendants came to her desk, had been working tirelessly and famously to put criminals behind bars. But this is a conservative politician writing an opinion piece, and facts be damned. She continues, but there is a way to stop the bleeding. Vote them out. District attorneys and solicitors general in all but a handful of states are elected along with many judges. Willis will be on the ballot in November, representing a rare opportunity to restore balance to an office that has supported the left's pro-criminal activism for far too long. Again, ignoring the facts that Fonnie Willis and local law enforcement in Atlanta and Fulton County have been putting criminals... The Fulton jail is overcrowded. Leffler continues, as Americans, we must acknowledge and end the left's lawfare. Lawfare, that is a, a, a use of the term law and warfare merged together. Lawfare, by removing partisans from a system that demands impartiality and a commitment to upholding the law. She writes in all seriousness after sitting in the Senate and rubber stamping three of Donald Trump's Supreme Court appointments. This is not a mission for Georgia alone, but for every community where failed or political prosecutors are working to change American justice to, quote, oh, here we go, equity. Boy, if she could have put woke in there, she would have. Why did the AJC even, uh, whatever. For all their talk of democracy, Democrats have made clear they will use the courts for their agenda when the ballot fails to get their results. Or maybe when Republicans fail to call their own to task. She finishes, the Fulton judge might well remove Willis from Trump's trial in the coming weeks, but it will be up to the voters of Georgia to remove her from the office of district attorney this November. She's not wrong there. There is an election coming up, and I don't think anyone else has qualified to run against Fonnie Willis, but if someone does appear on the ballot, voters will have that choice, won't they? And I've said all along, the questions of uh, Fonnie's ethics... Her, her, her dating someone that was working beneath, those are ethical questions that do not, by the way, provide a conflict of interest in this or any of the Trump co-defender cases, because again, they're on the same side. 
But it, it is a question of ethics, and it is a question that we, the Fulton County voter, get to weigh in on. I would argue Scott McAfee gets to vote, as everyone else does, in November, but I don't think he got anything in hearings in the past week and a half that would dictate that she should be removed as district attorney handling the Trump or the co-defendants cases. And remember, I let's, let's review. I was among those here on the left hand-wringing saying, uh, maybe she should take a leave of absence. She and Nathan would just, just remove any doubt of impropriety whatsoever. Not that there is a conflict of interest in the case, but just to, just to dodge this. And yet she and Wade went on the stand and explained themselves. And while there is a lack of a paper trail, and I know that that frustrates uh, Trump's attorney team there because cash doesn't have a paper trail. Uh, David Wickert, writing in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, a Napa Valley winery employee said that DA Fonnie Willis paid cash during a visit there with Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade. That is according to a CNN report. The account corroborates the district attorney's testimony last week that she often paid for expenses in cash and that she and Wade shared costs when they traveled. Here is Zachary Cohen from CNN discussing this. Stan Brody told me that he hosted Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade at Acumen Wines back in 2023 when um, they both visited um, this winery in Napa Valley, California. And he distinctly remembers the moment the bill came because it was about $400 and Fonnie Willis told him that she was going to pay cash, which struck him as odd given the amount. But take a listen to what he told me about his recollection of their visit to this winery and the moment where, she, where Fonnie Willis put the bill. I ran up the thing and I, I showed her, I was expecting a credit card, quite frankly. Right. And um, she said, I'll pay cash. And so that was that. So then I just put the cash in, made change for her. And she was very generous to me. So why does this matter, right? Um, in, in the hearing last week, we saw defense attorneys really push Willis on her use of cash because they're trying to establish that she and Nathan Wade had an improper relationship and that she benefited financially from that relationship in the form of um, him paying for these trips, including trips to Napa Valley, California. We now know at least one instance when she paid for Nathan Wade to visit this winery. Um, but take a listen to what Fonnie Willis testified to last week when she was pushed on her use of cash and the questions around that. And what did you pay for on that trip? I gave him much less cash that time, probably four or $500. And then I paid for uh, a bunch of stuff. I think we did two different wine tours that you do, which are pretty expensive. Um, I think I bought him. He likes wine. I don't really like wine, to be honest with you. I like Grey Goose. When I travel, I always take cash. There's an endorsement deal in there. So no, no, I think that would be ethically a problem. Was we we can have uh, celebrity uh, radio personalities, TV personalities, actors, actresses, and athletes take endorsements, but I, I think the the Fulton County or any district attorney shouldn't be out there uh, shilling for Grey Goose as paid endorsers. Would that make her an influencer on social? Yeah, I think it would. And so, for whatever reason, after last week's testimony. Kelly Lefter decided she needed to pen an OP in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, decided it was worthy of publishing, and yet she didn't say anything that really surprises anybody except that she herself, who has a problem with hyperpartisanship, decided to be hyperpartisan. Uh, Shidra Raghavan is the founder of Good Story Strategies. She's an executive coach, strategic advisor to a lot of CEOs, uh, a, a former journalist with uh, NPR and U.S. News and World Report. She also podcasts a media brand strategist. She also wrote an opinion piece. And it wasn't so much about Fonnie Willis that she writes, but it was about dominant, ambitious, powerful women 
who pay a price, a price that's different than men in similar positions. Uh, I'll dive into that a little bit. Looking to have her on the show at some point in time as well to extrapolate on this. Anyway, we'll dive into that in just a second. The Ron Show here on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Final segment of the show. Thank you for listening. Whether it's on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, take the time to podcast us. We do appreciate that. Liking and following that certainly helps. So there was obviously the Kelly Leffler piece, which was just dripping in partisanship and short on meat. And then you have uh, Shitra Raghavan's piece in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that appeared, I think, last night? Yeah, that's when it caught my eye. Uh, the headline opinion is, Fonnie Willis shows dominant, ambitious women leaders pay the price. And so I saw this yesterday, and I thought, let me click this. This is probably going to be in defense of Fonnie Willis, and kind of, but not really. Uh, I thought I'd share that with you. Shitra Raghavan is the founder of Good Story Strategies. She's an executive coach, strategic advisor to CEOs and other C-suite types. She's a media and brand strategist, prior journalist with NPR, U.S. News and World Report, and podcast a good bit as well. Shitra writes, for a while there, Fulton County Prosecutor Fonnie Willis was a role model for career women worldwide, including me, a graduate of the University of Georgia. After all, at a time when so many Republican leaders were cowering before their bully of a leader, Donald J. Trump, at a time when he was tying federal prosecutors in legal knots across the country, here was this little-known black female state prosecutor from Georgia vowing to hold Trump and his cronies accountable for alleged election interference. Her massive and complex case put Willis and her office on the national and global map. The classic David versus Goliath story consumed the headlines and set the imagination on fire for the future of women of all ages and colors who dare to aspire, she writes. Raghavan continues, but last week came the fall, and it was hard. The sordid allegations from lawyers for one of Trump's co-defendants that Willis benefited financially from her romantic involvement with the lead prosecutor, Nathan Wade, whom she had hired to manage the Trump case. She angrily and repeatedly denied the allegations in court, describing them as lies, lies, lies. We remember that clip. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives, a defiant Willis told Ashley Merchant, a lawyer for Trump co-defendant Mike Roman. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial. No matter how hard you try to put me on trial. We remember that as well, don't we? Raghavan continues. Still, Willis's courtroom grilling was humiliating for her. The scandal has jeopardized the entire case and put Willis' career and reputation on the line, even though many legal experts say... The defense didn't hit the legal burden to remove her from the Trump case. No matter the outcome, a code will be in her Wikipedia entry. Shitra Raghavan continues, Her father, John Clifton Floyd III, took the witness stand to defend his daughter, explain why she kept cash in the house as a black woman, and testify to her excellent character. He took some of the heat off Willis with his gentle demeanor as a straight shooter. But the fact that her father had to step in to protect his daughter reflects how difficult it is for women to proclaim her truth and innocence loud, proud, and strong. The repercussions ripple well beyond Willis. They not only dirty her reputation and compromise her case, but also send a message to powerful women. Don't you dare. Shitra Raghavan continues, The Willis Wade courtroom soap opera emerged as University of Michigan and Carnegie Mellon researchers published a new research study that shows that while men benefit from networking with high-status people, women lose status in the eyes of their colleagues and damage their careers. Why, she asks. The study's authors wrote, people typically don't like dominant and ambitious female leaders. 
Willis can certainly attest to that. The authors also point to sobering but unsurprising statistics that women, quote, continue to be underrepresented in the highest echelons of business and government. There were more dog whistles in the Willis hearing, Shita Raghavan writes, than in 101 Dalmatians, as a posse of all white lawyers questioned Wade and her about their physical, emotional, and financial relationship. Raghavan writes, as a former journalist and an executive coach to CEOs and C-suite executives, I find the Willis Affair and the networking study to hold many lessons for women in leadership. Here's what I would say to them, she writes. The microscope you will be under as a woman is infinitely more powerful and subjective than your male counterparts. Perception is reality. There's no getting around it. Act accordingly. Listen to your gut. If it feels wrong, it likely is wrong. Please don't do it. There are no secrets in the workplace. Word gets around. So if you want to start a love affair with a coworker, assume your colleagues will know. Acknowledge that your actions will have seismic reactions for your colleagues, their families, their careers, and their paychecks. Do right by them. Know that your robust networks will earn the jealousy of some of your colleagues. Ensure that they know, as the University of Michigan Carnegie Mellon Research Study urges, that you are using those relationships to benefit the organization, not just yourself. Yes, men don't have to do this, but those are the harsh realities. Ignore them at your peril, she writes. Fight back, just like Willis, if you are treated unfairly. Take the fight to the enemy and fight to win, not just on your behalf, but those of your fellow women leaders, and take your dad. Wow. Somehow, over the past four years, it has become okay to be openly racist, sexist, and misogynistic, Shitra Raghavan writes. For high-profile female leaders who challenge the power structure and the status quo, this holds risks, even physical danger for them and their families, as the assault of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's elderly husband and the countless physical threats against Willis show. Be aware of your surroundings. My final advice, Raghavan writes, to women in leadership is don't be willfully blind to your mistakes, like Willis is as she continues to deny her unmistakable ethical lapse. Own up to it and get out of the way of your colleagues, especially when the stakes are sky high. Perhaps not as high as the integrity of the American elections and the future of democracy as in the Georgia case that Willis is overseeing, for now at least. But high enough stakes for your mistakes to reverberate across the organization and undo the hard work and sacrifice of your colleagues and you. That is the word and the work of Shitra Raghavan. Again, who we've reached out to, I've gone back and forth with her via email yesterday and overnight that uh, hopefully we can get her on the show to talk about this and the different set of standards and uh, the way society views ambitious and powerful women and the difference in treatment, which I think we all saw was pretty apparent last week when Fonnie Willis charged into the courtroom to defiantly answer two questions from her critics and not just the attorneys that represented Trump and his co-defendants, but critics. I, I, I guess I would consider myself a critic in some respect. Clark Cunningham, GSU, Georgia State University professor who said that it was probably in her case's best interest. If she and Wade took a leave of absence, we both might be branded as critics. I think this well-written piece by Shitra Raghavan sort of identifies her as something of a critic. And she is a woman who understands the different set of standards and rules that apply to powerful men versus powerful women. 
That's going to do it for today's Ron Charles. I really hate that because I really wanted to discuss uh, the city of Atlanta has banned right turns in a couple of big chunks of the city. And there are folks who have strong opinions about this. No turn on red. I, I drive a lot throughout the city because I'm showing homes and whatnot, and I have to catch myself looking to see if that sign exists because I don't want to run afoul of the law. I also don't want to run over a pedestrian or some dude in a suit on a e-scooter. So there's that. Anyway, thank you for listening. We get the show replay weekdays 5 to 6 p.m. on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com. Of course, we podcast after that, and then we air first thing weekdays 9 to 10 a.m. here on America One Radio, AmericaOneRadio.com. Show notes at ronshowatl.com. Have yourselves a great day.